0: Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with John Gaspard
1: and Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, John, how are you? I'm good. And as as I listen to you do that live read-in, I'm thinking, you know, we're going to start recording uh, The Magic Square pretty soon. And I just might have you do the intro and outro of this podcast for real in an actual booth and go with that from now on. Everyone, listen in and see you for the next few episodes, if all of a sudden you're not doing that live, but we pre-record that, just one less thing for you to do. Wow. Uh,
0: I appreciate you trying to lighten my load, but I'm fully capable of doing this live each and every time. But happy to do what you're, I'm not the boss. You're the boss of me. If you want me to record this in a booth somewhere, I will happily do that for you.
1: Well, let's just see what happens.
0: Why wouldn't
1: we? We're, yes, exactly. So this is, as as I'm sure people have noticed from the notes, this is episode nine. We're going to be hearing chapter eight from the ambitious card.
0: I'm looking forward to the day when the episode numbers and the chapters somehow mystically align.
1: Well, I have good news and I have bad news for you. Okay. The good news is that season two is uh, the bullet catch, and those numbers will sync up perfectly until around chapter 19, chapter 20. The problem with that book is I think there's 26 chapters in it and we have to get it in in 24 episodes. And so for season two, toward the end, some episodes will have two shorter chapters in them. And then at that point, the numbers will be completely out of whack. It's going to drive you crazy. But that's not till the end of season two. so you have plenty of time.
0: I I just got to get through season one. And apparently I'm going to record from a booth from this point forward.
1: Just the intro and outro. No, this whole Zoom thing is working really nicely. I'm enjoying every minute of it. Yeah, it's been pretty fun. And we're getting some very good reactions to the podcast. Is that right? Yes, I'm getting, uh, you know, it's not a flood, but I didn't expect a flood. But the interesting thing is that the magicians are enjoying it and happy that we're not giving anything away and the non-magicians are enjoying it and feel like they're learning more about magic. So both halves of the equation are happy uh, and and no one's coming away mad, at least not well. yet. Or if they are, they haven't texted me or emailed
0: that's good. That's good. All good news. That's a, I'll take all of that.
1: Well, in this episode, we are going to meet uh, Uncle Harry's cronies, right. uh, which are the Minneapolis Mystics, and they are so named because, as I was doing research and learning uh, about magic, uh, I came across a group called the Long Beach Mystics, which yeah. are not the same as Minneapolis Mystics, but it was a group of uh, magicians.
0: They were young at the time, though. If I I don't remember the history completely, but they,
1: they were all part of the same magic club. Is that right? And That's was- right. In, in Long Beach, California, they all joined the club. I believe it was in the late 50s and they were famously a little bit unsupervised. And like us. Like us, exactly. And the people who I've heard talk about it most, like Mike Caveney uh, Mike uh, and Stan Allen, have talked about you know showing up and thinking you were pretty good at doing magic and then finding out when you're... F- first arrive at the Long Beach Mystics, just how much you had to learn. And they were very good at challenging each other. Uh, and the group has been, I mean, it's its sort of a famous group within magic because it is Mike Caveney, Michael Weber, Stan Allen, Mark Kalin, Kevin James, just a lot of big names came out of that. And the Minneapolis Mystics is also within Eli's world, big names and was sort of based on in doing research. I found there were, there was a group of magicians that met weekly at the Nankin restaurant in downtown oh, Minneapolis.
0: God bless the Nankin, and is that, I miss it to this day. Yeah. And and every, almost every Chinese restaurant in the cities has some reference to the Nankin. It's the Nankin's old chef. It's the Nankin's old recipe for chow mein. It's the Nankin's this. Uh, Nothing can compare, nor will it ever, uh, with the Nankin. Holy mackerel, was that good food?
1: It was, and the, the the magicians seemed to enjoy meeting there. For the purposes of uh, the Eli Mark series, I put them at the restaurant bar right next to Chicago Magic, which if it existed, in reality, it would be on 48th in Chicago, right between Adrian's Bar and the Parkway Theater. It doesn't exist, but that's exactly where it would go. Uh, Adrian's has since been sold and it's been renamed. But in Eli's world, uh, it still exists. And that's where the mystics meet probably almost daily.
0: Because they're uh, older fellas and they are mostly retired from performing. And there's a, uh, if I remember correctly, there's a card guy, there's a coin guy, there's a mentalist, and then sort of off to the side of ventriloquist, which were all the, the kind of types of acts that you would see at that point in the, you know, late fifties, early sixties on the Ed Sullivan show, or later on the Carson show, that's where you'd Find these guys.
1: Exactly. Uh, Sandy Marshall talked a little bit about his father's many appearances on the Ed Sullivan show. And that's just the sort of vibe we were looking for uh, with that group was these guys who are no longer actively working, but who have great histories of having appeared on on TV throughout the 50s, 60s and early 70s.
0: Yeah, And uh, who better to learn more about classic magicians performing on TV than our special guest. For this episode, we were lucky enough to talk to someone who not only booked a lot of them, but was also an accomplished magician himself, which I did not know, the one, the only Dick Cavett.
1: Yeah, amazing Dick Cavett. Yes, he he had a deep love of magic to this day. And because of that, I think was able to book not only some of the top magicians of the time but also bring people on TV for long periods of time. I think Slidini is on for two half-hour segments or more. Uh, so you really got to see how these guys worked at that time.
0: Which, uh, you know, I knew because I'm a, a, a Magic fan. So I have watched those, uh, Slidini and, you know, some of the other people that performed on Cabot's show. But what I did not know before we talked to Cabot was that he himself was a magician and... <laughs> Uh, not only a magician, but, you know, super into it. And that led to so much of what we later know uh, as the Dick Cavett show.
1: Exactly. In fact, when we talked to him, that was sort of the first thing we talked about was his early love of magic. In fact, my very first question was exactly that. Uh, Not everybody is aware of your lifelong interest in magic. So how did that start? When did you first get into magic?
2: It started at the Nebraska State Fair. I was wandering around and there was a man with a crowd of people in front of him. And he, he was doing card tricks. He was doing them with a, a, a trick deck that all magicians know about called the Svengali deck. And it's a deck in which you can turn all the cards to the, let's say, jack of hearts. Or all the cards, to all the different cards in a deck. It's, and before the eyes of the astounded onlookers. He did about 20 minutes of dazzling tricks with this thing. Uh, he did not reveal how it worked. You had to buy it to find that out. But it's a genius invention. Uh, I watched him probably for two hours. Do the same things over and over. And then I bought one. And I took it home and I learned the routine of about 25, 30 minute routine that you do with the deck. And I was astonishing people. And that was my beginning in magic. And I think some magician might be able to verify the fact that that man, I was then in what, junior high school, was named, I think, Jimmy Lobo. And he was known as the King of Svengales. Uh, and he spent his life going from fairs and places and pitching the Svengali deck. That's how I got hooked on magic. The first magician I ever actually met was a man named Gene Gloy, who invented watch out. Magicians will know what I'm referring to. And the second magician I actually met was named Carson, Johnny Carson.
0: Oh, I've heard of him.
2: Yeah, he was. <laughs> I was living in Lincoln, Nebraska then, and in Omaha... Omaha was New York to uh, people living in Lincoln, big city. And Johnny had a successful radio show there. And he, he, he had been at the University of Nebraska, but I'd never met him then. Uh, he's a, about a dozen years older than myself, older than I, my parents' English teacher would say. Uh, and I got news that he was coming to Lincoln. So two friends of mine who also dabbled in magic got early to the basement of the church he was going to appear in and went downstairs where the theater in this church was. And we pulled back the curtain, and there was this man, magician, tall, good-looking man, uh, arranging his tricks. And there's nothing a magician hates more than somebody coming around when he's putting the dove into the dove pan or putting something into something. And I said, it's all right, Mr. Carson. We're magicians. We were probably in tenth grade. He said, "Well, come on back, fellows," and he was very nice to us. And he showed us some tricks at the table he was working at. And later that evening, as he was doing his really dazzling magic act for this crowd, church basement, he said, uh, there, "There are some fellows up in the audience. I'd like to introduce to you." Uh, they're, they're magicians too. And he had us stand up, and the audience applauded, and we felt like we were on the Ed Sullivan show. Mm-hmm. It just, wow. At the end of that night, we watched Johnny glamorously disappear back into his uh, probably 1938 DeSoto and head back for Omaha and the glamorous world of magic and radio in Omaha.
1: What, wasn't there some issue with some some outrage about what he was doing on stage? That he had like, playing cards or something in a church? Am I misremembering oh,
2: that? Oh, Lord, y- yes. You must remember we were in the Bible Belt, and that wasn't obvious every day of your life. But on an occasion like this, some people were shocked and appalled and horrified because of what he, the sin he committed that night. Mm. He used playing cards in a church. To so imagine have there ever been a greater crime in the history of the world. He did, of course, some card magic along with his other stuff. It was uh, a simpler well, that, time,
0: wasn't it? it you know, uh, I am sort of a closet magician. I've never taken any lessons. I just read books and I do it for my own amusement. You went on and actually performed magic. Did you have a a mentor? Did you did you find someone to, you know, teach you or how did you learn and grow? I, well, you, you hit it on the
2: head. I did have a mentor because I did, went to a theater in Lincoln one day, a movie theater, but this was Saturday morning and they had a variety show. And then the first magician I ever saw, the aforementioned Gene Gloy, came out and did a dazzling act. And I got to know him. And he sort of took me under his wing and and coached me in what to do and not to do and how to do things. And that was wonderful. And out of that, I got an act of my own. I charged thirty five dollars at one point. That was my highest pay. And I did about, a, about an hour of magic. In fact, getting thirty five dollars in those days was a fortune for me. I played lots of churches and elks clubs and lions clubs and ladies' matinee events. And I made enough money that my school teacher parents were able to buy a new car. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that made me popular with them.
0: You, you actually entered a, a
2: contest and, and won when you were just a teenager, right? Yeah. yeah. There, there, there are two organizations, the Society of American Magicians, or the SAM, and the IBM. And I went to the IBM, International Brotherhood of Magicians, convention. I hadn't planned to perform there, but I had a rope and scissors and a few things I could use if I needed to. And I entered the Best New Performer contest, and I won it. The humor was that one of the other contestants was the president of the Society of American Magicians. This ended with an article in the Lincoln Journal called Young Lincoln Sharpie Best Magicians Group Head. Journalese, if you ever heard. Of. <laughs> and three pictures of me doing my rope trick, which I beat the president of the American Magicians and a few others. I got a trophy, and they introduced me at the big banquet that night as the winner and in a room full of magicians, a Ball River Hotel in St. Louis. But I, I, and I stood up, but I still couldn't be seen as in the crowd. So I got up and stood on the chair. This got an enormous hand and laugh, and there I was, soaking up applause for one of the first times in my life. Not the last, boy. By the way, on stage, I did my rope trick that night. I got a little girl on stage to be my helper, and I used, whatever magician knows, the breakaway wand. It's a magic wand, black with silver tips, and you hand it to the person, and when they take it, it sort of falls all to pieces and sags. So you take it back and it straightens again and you give it back to them and it falls limp again. As I went into doing, giving her the breakaway wand with magicians watching, I ad-libbed, you're probably the only person out of the hundreds in this room who doesn't know what's about to happen. (laughs) And the audience loved that because all the magicians had their own breakaway wand. (laughs) That, That was great fun. Then... I saw in the paper that Blackstone, the great Harry Blackstone, the last of the great illusionists, was coming to Omaha. And I went there, and he played with a Ginny Sims movie, and then an hour of Blackstone's Great Illusion. And again, I was in hog heaven. Um, went backstage in my pushy young way and said hello to Blackstone. Wow. And uh, I got a photograph, and I left on top of the world. But I realized that I had left my dad's pen in there that he autographed the picture with. So I had to go back, <laughs> find Blackstone, and say, I, don't, I, I think I left my dad's pen here, Blackstone, either magically or normally. I never knew which. said, but I put the pen in your pocket. And I reached in my pocket, and there it was. Oh, wow. I don't know if he did it by magic or what, but I loved it. Uh, and I felt kind of silly at that point. But I had met Stone, so there wasn't much more much farther to go, I went farther, of course, so if you have a kid who doesn't quite know what to do with himself or herself and can get them introduced in magic, you're golden. it will obsess them. they'll love it. They'll learn of the magic magazines that come out every month, a magic catalog. I have old magic catalogs that are just threadbare and falling apart from obsessing over them. And it's a great life to be a young magician. Uh, The other great move was I got to Chicago where my cousin lived. And Chicago had three big time magic shops. And I went to all of them and I hung around in them and I talked to magicians. And somebody said, you ought to come to the round table, kid. And they took me to a restaurant, which for some reason I remember was called The Drake. And there was a table with about 15 local, some well-known magicians. And again, I was in Hog Abbott. Yeah.
1: When you were in Chicago and you were uh, at the table with all the magicians, is that when you met Jay Marshall?
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, because one of the three magic shops in Chicago was uh, Joe Berg, Percy Abbott, the Abbott magic shop, and Ireland's. Francis Ireland ran the Ireland magic shop and as I got off the elevator on the fifth floor and saw the door that said Ireland's on it as I opened it and walked in a man about five steps up a stepladder I recognized and I said you're Jay Marshall I saw you on Ed Sullivan and Jay Marshall, and a debonair, wonderful, marvelous, funny man, came down the three steps of the ladder behind the counter and kept going out of sight down below <laughs> behind the counter. And then uh, he, he pretended to be so flattered he couldn't bear it. <laughs> and we became good friends, and he was a wonderful character.
1: Yeah. I had the, the good learned. pleasure of talking to Sandy Marshall a couple of weeks ago about his dad. And he told exactly that story about when you came into the shop and that that Jay (laughs) pretended that there were steps going down to a basement that wasn't there, and he still laughed about it.
2: It was wonderful meeting him. And, by the way, he invented a wonderful thing of magic. He could take a roll off the table from the plate of rolls and bounce it off the floor so that it came back up into his hand. A great contribution to the world of magic. (laughs) (laughs) off the train... Chicago and went to Ireland and spent the night in Chicago and saw Jay and Francis Ireland, uh, Jay Marshall and Francis Ireland for lunch. And I heard afterwards that Francis Ireland ran the shop, said to somebody, that kid really knows magic. And um, you did, I uh, bet, I bet I, you, I you I did. Up <laughs> and then did the Don Allen television show. You did? Yep. It came from uh, from Chicago, and it was the early days of TV. We didn't even have television in Lincoln at that point. But I saw myself on the monitor doing my rabbit vanish trick and had the first experience afterwards going back to Evanston where my cousin lived, of people on the street saying, saw you on television.
0: Wow.
2: You were great, kid. Wow. And again, I entered another... Hug oh, <laughs> heaven.
1: <laughs> uh, I had not remembered that you'd met Blackstone, and and that's a
2: and Don Allen, who I idolize.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a...
2: I, I had him on my show later Don, in later years. Don Allen. And uh, yeah, it was odd that the world reversed, and I had Don Allen on rather than the other way around. Yeah. But uh, that was that was the beginning. I, there, there was no turning back at that point. It was I was destined to go on in magic and have. Great times with it.
1: In, indeed, he was destined to go on. That's at the end of part one. What a great uh, conversation that was! Boy, the
0: whole thing was just fascinating. It was so fascinating that this is just part one.
1: Yeah, I know. We just we didn't even think we were going to be talking about this part. We thought we were oh. just going to talk about the stuff we we'll hit in the next episodes. This was this was a welcome surprise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what a, a what a cool, kind gentleman that's the word for the man uh but no it was great and, and he brought up Don Allen uh, and of course I'm a big I love cups and balls I love the chop cup which is a sort of a signature routine of Don Allen so that was fun to hear him uh, chat about
1: that and I know you well, know t- hang on hang on a second I, I I don't know anything about Don Allen so oh, Don Allen had like a, a weekly magic yeah. show on yeah, TV? He did
0: out of Chicago and was a bar magician there. If I have my history correct, it's been a while since I've sort of read about Don. But I, I know that he was an influence of, of Eugene Burgers. As a kid, his parents would take him to um, to some of the restaurants in Chicago, which had Matt Julian's And uh, Don Allen was one of the magicians that at a very young age, Eugene saw and was like, that's... The coolest thing in the world. And his chop cup routine is sort of the signature chop cup routine that magician, the way Di Vernon's cups and balls have influenced generations of magicians when they do cups and balls. Don Allen's chop cup had that same sort of effect. And the chop cup is is like a one cup version of cups and balls. So it's a little easier to follow. Um, and it, it, it he was a genius at it and a master.
1: Well, I'm, I'm just making a note now that if I can find a video of Don Allen doing you top can. cup, I will put, put that in the show notes so that oh, cool. uh, people don't have to be quite as ignorant as I was on that topic. Well, uh, you
0: know, there's so much out there. You can't be fluent in absolutely everything. I,
1: I suppose that's true. Yeah. I, I was also just... It was gobsmacked that one of the first professional magicians he saw in Nebraska was Johnny Carson. Isn't that weird? Yeah. What are the odds of that?
0: Yeah. And in part two of the interview, there's going to be some more talk about Johnny and their relationship. And, uh, and I didn't know any of that. I knew none of that. I, you know, I mean, I knew about Dick Cavett. Uh, essentially what you knew about Don Allen. You knew he was at, you know, he had a show, you knew he did. I saw some of it, blah, blah. But in terms of the ins and outs of a man's career, it's so cool that he connected with Carson and then reconnected with Carson. And it's just uh, part two is, is, is just as fascinating. I think as part one.
1: Yep. And what are the odds that his first appearance on TV would involve doing a magic trick? How about that? Uh, it's it's kismet. It is. Anyway, he'll be back in our next episode. So let's get to the business uh, of, of the ambitious card. You're about to read chapter eight. I'll just recap chapter seven for folks in case they forgot what's going on. Okay. Uh, Eli and Uncle Harry have just had a discussion about Eli's position as a person of interest in the murder of the mentalist Gray. Uh, they both had another run in in the store with that freelance British journalist, Clive Albans, who ended up getting a free magic trick from Eli. And in this next chapter, Eli is headed out to Gray's memorial service. But first, he stops by the bar next door for a quick chat with Harry and his cronies.
0: The Ambitious Card and Eli Marks Mystery Chapter Eight Ah, the prodigal nephew, Abe Ackerman said, looking up from the perpetual card game that absorbed the greater part of the Minneapolis mystic's time. He's used that same line every time he's seen me since I moved back into my apartment above the store. And although I don't find the line particularly funny, I give him credit because, like any good performer, he makes it sound brand new each time he says it. In his day, Abe was a top mentalist. "'although he insists that the amazing Kreskin stole most of his prime material "'along with his best and most attractive assistant. "'It's still a sore subject with Abe "'and a conversational minefield that is best avoided. "'Hi, Abe. Hi, guys,' I said to the group, which today numbered four. "'The others just glanced up from their cards and grunted a collective greeting.' I'd stepped into the bar next to Chicago Magic, expecting to find Uncle Harry seated in the back, and he did not disappoint. Once my eyes adjusted to the dim light provided by the dirty 40-watt bulbs and the illuminated beer signs that lined the walls, I'd had no trouble spotting Harry and his cronies seated at their regular table at the far end of the long, narrow room. Nowadays we have friends, acquaintances, and Facebook buddies. But in Harry's world, you had cronies. The group has suffered some attrition in the last few years, but that's inevitable in any group whose member's average age is 75. The club formed when they were in their teens and just on the cusp of their respective entertainment careers. Officially, they call themselves the Minneapolis Mystics. But ever since I was a kid, I've called them by the name that Aunt Alice lovingly bestowed on them. The Artful Codgers. I put a hand on Harry's shoulder. I'm headed off to the memorial service, I said, so I've locked up the shop until you're done over here. I might as well be done with the miserable cards I've been getting. I'm out, Harry said, tossing his cards on the table in disgust. He looked at the current dealer, Sam S. Bjornson. "'I'd accuse you of cheating, Sam,' Harry growled, "'if I didn't know for a fact that you're the worst card man west of the Mississippi.' "'East of Mississippi as well,' chimed in Abe. "'He's got incompetence covered coast to coast. "'Not to mention incontinence,' Harry added. "'Oh, stick in your ear,' Sam grumbled as he peeked at his cards. Sam was primarily a coin magician, and his alleged inability to handle cards was a consistent source of amusement for the group. However, if you wanted to witness a perfect rendition of the miser's dream, a magician producing a seemingly endless shower of coins magically from his fingertips, Sam was your man. Did you say memorial service? asked Max Monarch, who, like many in his age bracket, was perpetually interested in who had just died or was suspected to be approaching the end. Unlike Sam, Max Monarch was a card magician, one of the best, and so all eyes were trained on him like lasers whenever it became his deal. If he did cheat, my guess is that even at his advanced age, they'd never spot it. "'Yes, a memorial service,' I repeated. "'No one you know,' I added, before he could raise the question. "'It's that fake medium who was
2: murdered,'
0: Harry explained to the group. "'And my nephew here is the prime suspect,' he added, with a hint of pride in his voice. "'Is he now?' Max asked earnestly. "'Hardly the prime suspect,' I said, making my tone as jovial as possible. "'Probably not even in the top 10 "'Don't be so humble. They took him in for questioning.' "'Harry said, turning back to the group. "'An interrogation, actually.' "'They all nodded in appreciation "'at this new juicy bit of information. "'I've got a nephew who's been arrested plenty. "'Let me tell you, every other day he's in or out of jail,' Abe said. "'For jaywalking, most likely, and other petty offenses,' Harry said, "'waving it away with his hand. "'This is serious business, a capital crime.' "'So you're a suspect, and you're going to his memorial service? "'What's the sense in that?' Max asked, "'and the others all made grunts of agreement. "'Seems a bit on the crazy side if you ask me.' "'Of course he has to go,' Harry said, "'raising his voice above the general hubbub of the group. "'How else can he get a handle on the other suspects and clear his name? "'That doesn't happen if you're just sitting at home on your tush. "'Person's got to burn a little shoe leather "'when you're the top suspect in a murder.' The comment miraculously turned the direction of the argument, with everyone now agreeing that attending the memorial service was, after all, the most prudent course of action. The actual murderer always turns up at the funeral, Sam said definitively. I've seen it happen a hundred times on TV. Yes, you just keep your eyes peeled and you'll nail them clear as day. "'Abe agreed. "'But you keep on your toes, Buster,' Max added. "'How many times has the prime suspect ended up being the second victim?' "'You're right. Ninety-nine percent of the time that happens,' Sam agreed. "'It catches me by surprise every time.' "'He looked at me. "'You be careful, Buster. "'I mean, what's the point of clearing your name if you just end up dead?' "'I patted him on the shoulder. "'You make a good point,' I said, "'trying my best not to sound patronizing.' So let me make sure that I understand how I should approach this. I need to keep my eyes peeled for the actual killer. I looked around the table and received expressions of agreement all around. But at the same time, make sure I'm not the next victim. Is that it? Bingo, Abe said. And if you have time, you should also try to get yourself laid. They were all still laughing when I left. The memorial was held at a church that stretched the term non-denominational to its breaking point. Sitting high on a hill overlooking Lake Harriet and settled in a funky little neighborhood of high-income, well-intentioned liberals, vegans, and soccer moms, the Silver Dome Church had evidently gone through multiple incarnations over the years. Currently, it was stripped of all vestiges of Christianity inside and out, with the obvious exception of two impressively large stained glass windows depicting scenes of Jesus and his disciples. Although I had no trouble finding a parking space, I was surprised to find that the main floor was packed when I arrived. Informed that there was no seating available downstairs, I was directed upstairs to the small two-row balcony that overlooked the sanctuary. That someone as universally loathed and repellent as Gray could command a sell-out crowd for his final send-off struck me as a hopeful sign for anyone who was worried about the attendance numbers at their own memorial service. It certainly made me feel better about my own funereal expectations. The leader of the service, an exceedingly calm, and painfully soft-spoken man in his early forties was dressed in khakis and a turtleneck and sported long brown hair and a beard. I don't know if he was consciously trying to look like Jesus in the stained-glass windows so as to justify the window's continued existence, but the resemblance was uncanny. He was in the midst of a guided meditation as I made my way down the length of the balcony to the one remaining seat— a wobbly folding chair that had seen better days. It was tough getting past the others seated in the row as most had their eyes closed and some were rocking back and forth to the melodious sound of the leader's words that echoed through the church's surprisingly up-to-date sound system. "'You're on the river of love,' he said in a voice like warm caramel, floating in the flow, in the moment, in the now.' You are embraced, enveloped, and encased in love." Once seated, I scanned the room below me, taking advantage of the fact that most people were in full meditation mode, with their eyes closed. Based on the few recognizable faces I spotted, the local psychic community was out in full force. Although they may not have liked Gray in life, they were certainly coming together as a group behind the idea of his passing. I inspected the crowd again and recognized a face, or to be more accurate, given the angle I was at, the side of a face, some hair, a nose, and a right ear that looked familiar. I was pretty certain that it was Megan, and I strained to get a better view without toppling over the railing. If the railing was in the same shaky condition as my chair, I realized that I would be wise not to put any weight against it. I peered as best I could from the relative safety of my seat, and my suspicion was confirmed in the worst possible manner. The person next to my potential, Megan, chose that moment to adjust his position in the pew, and I recognized him as Pete, her soon-to-be ex-husband. I swore under my breath, but apparently not far enough under for the woman seated next to me. Her eyes snapped open like a window shade with an overactive spring, and she raised an accusing eyebrow in my direction. I settled back in my seat and put on my best look of repose. Once her eyes were closed again, I continued my long-distance scrutiny. It certainly looked like Megan, and it was absolutely Pete. I couldn't tell for sure from this distance, but they might have even been holding hands. I didn't like the looks of that at all. Thank you, everyone, the leader said, speaking softly into a microphone on a stand at the center of the altar. And now, in conclusion, we will celebrate Gray's life with affirmations of his spirit. We'll open the floor to any of you who desire to step forward and express your feelings for Gray, for his energy, and for the tranquility of his spirit in the next world. And, he added with a tone that sounded a bit too upbeat for the proceedings, your affirmations of Gray will be supported musically by harpist, full-body healer, medical intuitive, and aura photographer, Ariana Dupree. With that introduction, a large, dramatically dressed, middle-aged woman stepped out of the congregation and toward the harp, which was situated off to one side of the altar. She wore a bright, multicolored caftan, and on her head sat a turban that looked distinctly African, although the woman herself couldn't have been more white. She settled her bulky form behind the harp, and the large instrument seemed to disappear into the folds of her caftan. Even from the balcony, I was amazed at the delicate sounds she produced from the instrument with her large doughy fingers. The leader took a seat. Ariana continued to play, and we all waited for the first mourner to step forward and present their tribute to Gray. The tranquil sound of the harp and an occasional light cough were the only sounds in the church for several moments. After a few more moments, with no volunteers stepping forward, people began to fidget nervously in their seats. The sound of their rustling was misinterpreted by others as the sound of someone getting up to speak. People craned their necks and peered around, and one or two popped halfway up out of their seats like prairie dogs to see who was taking the plunge. But the truth was, no one was stepping forward. Ariana moved gracefully from one tuneless song to the next, and still we sat, waiting for someone, anyone, to break the silence, which had gone past uncomfortable and was now well into the realm of sort of creepy. Then, from my vantage point high above, I saw a lithe figure rise and move down a pew gently stepping past congregants who shoved their legs aside as best they could within the tight quarters of the bench. As soon as she hit the aisle, I recognized her. It was Nova, Gray's assistant. She was dressed all in black, as she had been at the show, but this outfit was a lighter, more casual version of her show attire. She stepped into the aisle and moved silently toward the altar and the microphone. The leader, seated off to one side, gestured toward her as if to say, ''Yes, I believe you're next. Go right ahead, dear.'' Nova stepped gingerly up to the microphone and barely looked at the crowd, her long, dark hair surrounding her face. She cleared her throat and then stepped back for a moment, looking like she was about to reconsider the notion of being up there. Then she stepped forward and began to speak softly. Her low volume was not an issue, though, as everyone was leaning forward in rapt anticipation. "'Gray was a son of a bitch,' she said in a surprisingly girlish voice. The statement produced an audible gasp from the group. It didn't appear to come from any one person, but rather from the entire group and mass. "'He was hurtful and hateful, and I, for one, am glad he's dead,' "'She stepped back from the microphone, seemingly finished, "'and then instantly stepped forward one more time. "'Plus, he was bad in bed!' "'With that final statement, Nova gave a quick nod "'and moved away from the microphone. "'With her head lowered, she glided back down the aisle to her pew. "'Everyone made room for her to pass, "'and in a matter of moments, she was back in her seat "'and the church was once again quiet,' with the exception of Ariana's monotonous plucking on the harp. The leader looked around the church, hopefully, as I'm sure Nova's speech was not, in his mind, the ideal closing act. No one else stepped forward, so he finally got up and returned to the microphone. "'Thank you,' he said, smiling in Nova's direction, "'for sharing your feelings.' And for those of you who enjoyed Ariana's performance on the harp, she wanted me to remind you that her CDs are available out in the lobby, at her shop, Akashic Records, and at the Akashic Records website. And finally, before we conclude, I want to remind you that a reception will take place starting immediately just down the street at the home of Dr. Morris Bitterman. That name rang a bell with me. A few years back, there had been a football player with the Minnesota Vikings named Morris Bitterman. There had been a lot of confusion during his arrival in the Twin Cities because he insisted that his first name be pronounced using the British pronunciation Morris. It seemed unlikely that there would be two identically named men in the same city, but it seemed just as unlikely that a former Viking defensive end would be attending Gray's funeral. On the main floor, people began to get up and shuffled toward the exit. The folks in the balcony were filing out even more slowly, so I stood and watched the crowd below as they made their way out of the sanctuary, trying to see if there was anyone large enough to be a former football player. As they walked down the main aisle, it was now abundantly clear that the woman I thought might be Megan was, in fact, Megan, and Pete was Pete. I was just stepping back to get clear of their line of sight when Pete spotted me. A big smile washed across his face, and he waved up to me, then turned to Megan and pointed me out to her. It was too late for me to step out of sight, so I waved wanly at them. Pete used some rough sign language to indicate that we should meet outside the building. I bobbed my head in agreement, trying to appear happy about it. From that distance, it might have even looked convincing. Although I felt like I was stalling, and in many ways I was, it really did take a long time to get out of that skinny balcony and down the narrow, twisty steps to the church's foyer. By the time I made my way down, most of the crowd had exited the church, and the remaining attendees were standing in conversational groups of two and three right outside the front door on the concrete steps leading to the sidewalk. I quickly scanned the groups before I spotted Pete and Megan standing on the sidewalk talking to a small bird-like woman. Once again, Pete noticed me before I could duck out of view. He gave me an enthusiastic wave and I waved back as I headed down the steps toward them. I hadn't seen the two of them together very often, but when I had, I was always struck with the same cruel thought. How did such a doughy, average-looking guy like Pete hook up with a woman like Megan? It wasn't that Pete was unattractive or homely. It was that his bland averageness was put into sharp relief whenever he was standing next to Megan. On the other hand, I realized that people would probably be saying the same thing about me if Megan and I were a couple. I'm surprised to see you two here, I said. Really surprised. Pete shrugged. Megan's trying to get more involved in the psychic community, and I thought I'd just tag along to be supportive. I smiled and looked toward Megan, who was, of course, stunning, in a light winter coat over a dark blouse and skirt combination. Then I noticed that her smile seemed even more forced than my own. There was an awkward silence, and then Megan quickly filled the gap by turning to the tiny, gray-haired woman next to her. Eli, do you know Franny? Franny Higgins, this is Eli Marks. I don't believe we've met. I turned and put out my hand to the woman, who was at most a speck over five feet and probably in her late sixties. She seemed to take no notice of me, but instead rummaged in her purse. She finally found what she was searching for and wrestled it out of the bag. It was a pair of glasses with almost comically thick lenses. She pulled them onto her face and peered up at me. So, you're the one they say killed Gray, she stated, more than queried in a thin, raspy voice. She had a sharp, pointed nose, and the glasses magnified her deep blue eyes, throwing them out of proportion with the rest of her face. Before I could answer, she had taken my outstretched hand, but not in a handshake, She grabbed my fingers roughly and began to knead them like a pile of bread dough, rolling my fingers around in her tiny hands while looking up at the sky thoughtfully. After a few moments, she clucked her tongue and shook her head. "'No, no, it wasn't you. You didn't do it.' She patted my hand warmly and then released it, turning her attention to Pete and Megan. "'I'm hungry. Are you two going to the reception?' The sudden change of topic seemed to take them by surprise. They looked at each other, obviously with no prearranged game plan in place. Yes. Yes, Megan said without assurance. I was going to go. It's just down the street. I thought I'd walk. Oh, that sounds nice, Pete said. He looked to Megan for confirmation, and her non-reaction was taken as assent. Too far on my old feet, Franny said, turning back to me. Are you going... "'More importantly, are you driving?' "'I could go and I could drive,' I said. "'I'm parked just over there.' I added, gesturing to the lot directly across the street. "'Rockstar Parking!' "'I like you better already,' Franny said, giving me a slap on the arm as she turned and headed toward the corner. She spun back and looked at Megan and Pete. "'We'll see you there!' She started to cross the street without waiting for me. I looked to Pete and Megan. "'I guess I'll see you there,' I said, as I hurried to catch up with Franny, who moved with remarkable speed for someone who was both old and tiny. "'Does this thing have heated seats?' Franny asked once she had settled into the front passenger seat. "'Yes, yes it does,' I said, "'but we're only going a block.' "'Crank it up,' she said, cutting me off. "'I've been chilled since my mid-forties.' I started the car and turned the seat warmer on for the passenger side and then turned the car's heater to high for good measure." She settled back with a sigh as the warmth began to seep through the upholstery. "'Nice,' she said with a satisfied sigh. "'I could get used to this.' I shifted the car into gear, and we moved out of the parking lot following the small parade of cars that had chosen to drive the short distance to the reception. After a few moments, we passed Pete and Megan walking together down the sidewalk. Pete's hands were stuck deep into his pockets, while Megan was looking up at the houses they were passing. I watched them for just a moment too long. "'I'd stay away from that pair,' Franny said suddenly. "'They're doomed.' "'Pardon me,' I turned my attention back to my driving. "'Who's doomed?' "'That couple. The end is near. You can feel it on them like a stink.'
1: "'Really?
0: So is that a psychic prediction?' I asked, trying to sound light and conversational. Simple intuition. Plus, i have been married three times, so I recognize the signs. Franny put her hands up in front of one of the air vents and let the warming air envelop her fingers. I saw the way you looked at her. It's only going to end in tears, my friend. Only going to end in tears. She began to fiddle with the radio knob. Do you have a satellite? No. Sorry. That's a shame. They say it helps the resale value of the car, she added. This car warms up quick, though. I'll give you that. Good thing, since it's supposed to snow tonight. Franny shook her head. No snow. Not tonight. I glanced over at her as she adjusted the vent that was pointing at me, turning it so that now it blew in her direction. The weatherman said we're getting a big snowstorm. I said six to eight inches by morning. Franny shook her head again. Not going to happen. Even the National Weather Service predicts a big storm, I added, not really knowing why I was being so adamant about the weather forecast. Like they've never been wrong before, she added, turning her hands over and warming the other sides. We had arrived at our destination, and now it was just a matter of finding a place to park. I slowed my speed and began to look for an opening. There's a space right around the corner, Franny said. No, I've seen a lot of cars turn there. I don't think so. Trust me, there's a parking space. It was such a definitive statement that it was hard to ignore, so I did as instructed, just as I had suspected there weren't any spots. And then a parked car suddenly pulled out into the street, leaving a prime parking spot in its wake. I glanced over at Franny, who shrugged. "'Told you,' was all she said. "'Now let's get something to eat.' The second I stopped the car, she shoved open the passenger door with a surprising amount of gusto and moments later had moved quickly toward the house. I hurried to catch up with her.
1: All right, that's chapter eight. And we've gotten to meet a couple characters who will be important in the book and then one who will be important in the series, Franny, who uh, Eli is giving a ride uh, at the end of the chapter. Franny was supposed to be uh, just in one book and she has ended up becoming something of a mainstay. Who knew? I certainly yeah. didn't.
0: So as I think back on the recording of all of the books, the parts with the, the mystics really you know, are near and dear to my heart because all of them are my Uh, impressions if you will of um, sort of famous people I based them all on somebody and I won't get into who each and every one of them are but uh, it's really fun for me to do those characters and then to listen to it it's in my own ear hear how close I got or I think I got to what I was going for so it's a fun group of guys.
1: They are fun and I will plant a little easter egg in the listener's Ears to say uh, in an upcoming book in the series. It's not in The Ambitious Car, but in a future one, as we were recording, I said, Well, why don't you make this character sound like Garrison Keillor? And uh, if you're listening for it, you will hear it. If you're not listening for it, you might not even notice it, but it's very funny. Okay. uh, Before we wrap up the show, I want to thank Dick Cabot for taking the time to chat with us and also to thank his wife, Martha, for helping out in the technical end of things.
0: Hey, uh, you can follow Dick Cabot. I'm just seeing this now on Twitter at the Dick Cabot. All one word. The Dick Cabot. He's on Twitter and worth following.
1: He is. He's pretty funny on Twitter. Uh, I've also put up several links in the show notes to performances from his past shows.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Click on those show notes. You're going to see great, great magic performed by literally the who's who of magic. Uh, Di Vernon, Sly Dini, even Johnny Carson performing some magic. Uh, plus, I think, John, you found a video of Dick Cavett performing magic as well.
1: Yes, doing a card trick. Yeah, it's really fun. It's really fun. And like you said, if you want to check out further Dick Cavett interviews with people he's talked to, um, they've broken them up into bite-sized chunks and he's all over YouTube. It's really easy to just type in Dick Cavett and Catherine Hepburn or Dick Cavett and Muhammad Ali or Dick Cavett and Orson Welles, all kinds of fun chunks. Of of things to find there. And uh, as long as you're on the internet, give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening on uh, or leave a review because apparently that helps the algorithm.
0: Oh, well, I love that. I'm not much for your math, but uh, anything that helps is good by me. And you know what else? Make sure you, you don't miss an episode. Hit that subscribe button. That'll solve that issue for you.
1: All right. We'll be back next time with part two of Dick Cavett. Thanks, everybody. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast
0: with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Thanks for listening. That's probably the last time you'll hear me do that live.